So I've got a guest in studio who studies space, the stars, all sorts of things, and his name is Dr. Michael Rutkowski. Good morning, Dr. Rakowski. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. So you're relatively new here in Mankato. You said you're from Virginia, originally went to University or Arizona State. Mm-hmm. And what is your degree in then? Uh, so I we astrophysics is a, a little bit more compressed degrees. We typically, you, you'll go straight from your bachelor's into the PhD program. You get your master's along the way in case. So astrophysics. In astrophysics, yeah. And is so that like astronomy or? Well, astronomy used to be the science, but then yeah. uh, we realized just naming and classifying the stars wasn't enough. We had to apply some physics to understand why blue stars were blue or red stars were red or why galaxies looked the way they did. So the field of astrophysics is where you get your degree now. So I got my master's oh. in 2013 and then my Ph.D. or excuse me, my master's in 2010 and then Ph.D. in 2013. And you've been in Minnesota for several years now. I did a postdoc at the U for three years when I, um, right after grad school until 2016. Then I moved to, to Sweden and worked at Stockholm University for two years and then came here in 2018. Now, the big news that everybody's been seeing is about this James Webb Space Telescope. And, of course, that's been in the news. And it's supposed to be even stronger and better than the Hubble Telescope, which we thought was a big deal. So let's talk about this. What is the significance of this? Yeah, this this is a... Uh a really big deal. It's like the um, Cadillac of uh, it, cars it's or? it's a thousand Cadillacs. I mean, it's Whoa. a tremendously it's a exciting time um, to be an uh, astrophysicist, uh, to be an astronomer, to be anyone who enjoys looking at the night sky. Um, Hubble is a fantastic. Hubble will always be my favorite telescope. But James Webb is light years beyond, uh, to use a poor pun. Um, <laughs> it is uh, James Webb both has the ability to do uh, different wavelengths of observation as well as different imaging modes or spectroscopic modes. So not only can it get different colors of the spectrum, it can also examine the spectrum in different ways. And so we can look at not only images of stars in uh, in the infrared redder than what the human eye can see, but we can look at um, uh, we can use what we call spectroscopic modes. We can break that light apart into its constituent colors and use that information in order to determine, you know, where is the galaxy located in space? How old is it? What it's com- what, what is it composed of? Um, how has it been changing over time? Is there any way to get perspective on how much further or better that is there any I can't think of anything that maybe there's an analogy of something how much better this is or farther it can see compared with previous yeah, methods. It was it was uh, in the first, actually, the pre- President Biden released uh, the first image on Monday as a sneak peek of what was to come. And then yesterday was the big release of the data for uh, what we call a gravitational lensing cluster. So we have a, f- a foreground group of galaxies, which is bending the light of the background galaxies towards our, our, our v- vantage point. And what JWST has done in a in really a couple of hours is to reveal galaxies in that field in that image that took weeks to observe with Hubble. Uh-huh. So in just a couple of it's an order of magnitude increase um, in the amount of science that can be done for the same amount of time. So are we going to discover completely new galaxies and things? I mean, what's going to what is gonna, this going to result in? Absolutely. Um, I I would expect that there will be papers that come on. Uh, physicists have a little private server where they post their first mm-hmm. results and ask for consideration. I, I expect to see results tomorrow where people have looked at the data that was released yesterday and found X number of new galaxies and in just one image. Um, 
we will be able to see, in principle, JWST was built to see the very first galaxies that came into existence. So Hubble doesn't just doesn't have the the power to uh, and doesn't have the the coverage and wavelength to observe these most distant galaxies, these earliest galaxies to form. James Webb is is built to find these. So, so we, what is in this that makes it so powerful? The size of the mirrors are much larger. Okay. Hubble is a two and a half uh, meter or six or so feet across. Uh, HS or JBOST is about eight and a half meters across. So it's you know four times larger in area, which is 16, almost 20 times larger in collecting area larger collecting area, more light can be gathered, okay. and it has infrared detectors. So your, your your cell phone or something has an optical detector in it. It's designed to see wavelengths of light that your eyes are familiar with, red, greens, and blues. This is detecting light that's redder beyond what your eyes can see in the red. And because the universe is expanding, because the light from distant galaxies is being red shifted, the optical light that they emit is on its way to us with JWST is being shifted into the red. So if you want to see those galaxies as they exist when or as they emitted the light, you need to build infrared detectors in order to capture that light. And so JWST has size and technological capabilities that Hubble just doesn't have. Okay, so this is a really simplistic question, Lynn. Why not just make a bigger one so you can see even farther? Well, the I, the, I mean, ideally, that's what we would do. We would always, I mean, th and that was the, the theory behind JWST. HST was so big, it, you need to have an order of magnitude increase, so you build the next biggest mm -hmm. thing. The next telescope mission to be built after JWST ends in maybe a decade or 15 years. So it must be pretty complicated to do this in order to, I mean, why it takes so And that's the issue, is oh. it's so complicated to build an the, order of magnitude increase okay. so HST was when it was first floated as an idea was going to cost something around a billion dollars JWST cost about 10 billion dollars wow. the next telescope after this to get that order of in magnitude increase is an order of magnitude increase in cost <laughs> okay the next telescope that we would hopefully start to construct in like the 2050s so maybe when I'm <laughs> looking at retirement right that telescope is right now pegged at something like 40 billion dollars it's so expensive to give to 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 perfect the instrumentation, perfect the design, perfect the technology to, to build it. So ideally, we always build bigger because that means we can collect mm -hmm. more light. But it's there are a lot of other things people want to spend money on besides figuring out where the universe came from. So we have to compete with those other with those other factors. But isn't it considered the infinite, the, the, the universe? I mean, it goes on forever, so you'll never find the beginning. Well, so there is a. Um, in our in our current working theory of how the universe mm -hmm. came into existence, there was at some point in time a, a big bang. Um, time began at some point. In a very short period of time after that, the universe expanded very very rapidly. Eventually, expanded to a point that it cooled, was able to coalesce and form galaxies and stars. But there are galaxies that we will never be able to observe because the light. Uh, because these galaxies are so distant that given the age of the universe, the light simply could not have traveled. So we have a sort of natural limit to what we can probe. The universe may, in fact, have an infinite extent. Um, if the Big Bang Theory is incorrect, that there was no you know, specific start to mm -hmm. everything, um, then the universe may continue on into infinity. We may never be able to probe that, though, because the only way we can probe something is if we can make a measurement. In right. astrophysics, we make measurements with either light or gravity from the objects, and those signals always travel, are limited by Einstein to travel no faster than the speed of light. So we're always going to be limited uh, by that by that time scale. So 
probing beyond that edge may be, may be impossible without some alternative model of physics that gives us insight to what's going on there. From That's where our, our friends in the particle physics field, for example, okay, they, they, they help us out to try to understand what was happening in those very early days to uh-huh. give rise to the universe that we, we, we see today with galaxies and so such. So could this potentially bring up new theories of how the, the universe developed? I mean, we maybe discover some new things and we say, ha-ha, maybe we weren't right. Yeah, I mean that's the, that's the hope. I mean, and and uh, and it already looks really good for that. Um, as I'm talking back and forth on, with with mm-hmm. colleagues around around the world, really. Um, the uh, there's a big question. For example, is um, there's a lot of new hydrogen. Hydrogen's the simplest element. Right. It's one proton with one electron. For some reason, over the history of the universe, hydrogen, which was formed with one proton bound to one mm-hmm. electron, became ionized. The electron was kicked free. So it needed to be exposed to some amount of energy in order to be kicked free. Where did that energy come from? We've always assumed that, well, the stars produce a lot of that energy. Mm-hmm. So stars probably did this, but we've never actually been able to confirm this uh, at the moment at which this was happening. Okay. James Webb is going to give us tremendous insight into that, whether or not that theory of of stars or star formation in galaxies being able to strip free these electrons in the early history of the universe. Can you tell me who James Webb is? Why is this telescope named James Webb? Yeah, so James Webb was the director of NASA during the uh, uh, the Apollo days. Okay. Um, and so um, James Webb, I th- there's, a, there's a famous story, or I don't know if it's an, an anecdotal or apocryphal, but um, James Webb, Kennedy asked NASA how much would it cost to go to the moon? Mm. And James Webb went back to his staff and they said it'll cost about a billion dollars to go to the moon um, or whatever the number was. And James Webb famously then was said to have gone back into the White House and said, it's going to cost us two billion dollars to go to (laughs) To the moon. To make sure it covered. And so we were able to make it under budget. (laughs) Okay. Um, So James Webb was was very closely linked with the the early days of lunar exploration and uh, early space flight, human space flight. So... You having studied this for much of your life, uh, the, the stars, the universe, etc. When you saw these first pictures that were that came from the James Webb Telescope, what was your first impression? Oh, it was. I mean, you, mind blown. Yeah, it, it's it's the cliches are, that we often use are are overused, but um, it was jaw dropping and and mind blowing. Really? Um, if I don't know if you saw, they they had the press release at Goddard and. I, I was talking to my mother about this last night, and I said, when those people were ooing and aahing in the crowd, that wasn't for show. That wasn't because they knew they were on TV. Oh, okay. There were I, there were people who were crying out of just pure joy Couldn't that we it. were able to accomplish this. There were so many things that could have gone wrong with the deployment, the construction and deployment of James Webb, the James Webb Space Telescope. Well, where is it? Where is, is it? It's about a million miles from us right now. It how, hangs, how did it get there? In a satellite? or I mean, We, we launched it. Uh, we, not... The, uh, we being the, the the globe, the Europeans launched it on behalf of NASA oh, okay. with an Ariane 5 rocket, which was launched from French Guiana. The um, Europeans launched all of their satellites from South America, the north coast okay. of South America. And so they launched it. It's the it's the only rocket that was large enough to carry a, a saddle, a telescope as big as wow. James Webb. Okay. So it went out um, in, a, in a, a span of about a month or so, I believe. It got out to about a million miles out from Earth. It was parked in an orbit 
that puts it in a nice location that it can tilt its its shields, its sun shields, so that it can stay in a really cold, dark spot in the universe and block out the light from the Earth, the sun, and the moon, which would really frustrate measurements that you're making with these very highly sensitive detectors, these infrared detectors. There's a few other satellites that's been used before this, this location. It's called L2. Um, and it's a nice place because you don't have to use any gas to keep you in that orbit. It's a place at which the the gravitational pull and your centrifugal centrifugal acceleration or centrifugal force mm -hmm. um, equal out um, due to, between the Earth, Sun, and Moon, or the Earth and Moon. The, excuse me, the Earth and Sun systems. Okay. Um, so it's an it's a nice place to hang out if you don't want to use a lot of fuel to stay there. And so it'll it'll park there. And I mean, will it be there forever till it disintegrates, or what happens with it? Yeah. So it's by. I guess by law, it's required. Um, the contractors had to make it last for at least five years. Oh. So its nominal mission is about five years. At that point, some of the one of the instruments will probably run out of fuel to cool itself down. Okay. The rest of the instruments will work fine as long as it's not smacked by a uh, meteorite or something. But it'll sit out there until it just basically runs out of, r runs out of uh, juice. And then it'll continue to sit there for in time immemorial. In, in the year 2200s, kids will probably take school trips to visit the JWST memorial site out at L2. Um, wow. But it'll just sit there. Um, it'll, it'll, um, it'll be pushed by the solar wind, so it'll change yeah. its orbit eventually. But um, it's, it will hang out there for about at least 10 years taking data. Sure. And then for the next 15 years after that, it'll, we'll be looking at the data. Who takes that data? Where does that data go? Is there, I mean, is it like shared by everyone in the astrophysics world or does somebody get it and have proprietary ownership or that's a good question actually it's a it's extremely competitive to get oh. the your object i'm really excited about this planet or this yeah. galaxy it's uh we compete for time oh. as astronomers okay. or astrophysicists so we provide a proposal nasa convenes a committee to decide who's going to get is your what project time? worthy or not? Yeah. And then usually what happens, like with Hubble, for example, is that that data is given a proprietary period of about six months um, so that the astronomers who propose that can write the papers and do the science they want. But then it becomes available to everyone. In this first round of data that's being obtained in what we call cycle one, a mm -hmm. lot of that proprietary period has been waived. So as soon as the data is downloaded from to the what we call the deep space network, it's then piped over to Baltimore, where it's accumulated on hard drives. Anyone in the world, so you can you can use it. Anyone in the world can oh, download wow. it. Yeah. Okay. Um, you can be on an island in the South Pacific, and um, you could you could be on vacation in Fiji and download the data if you wanted. Um, you could, uh, and that will be the case for a lot of the data. Will will because there's so much data. And there's so little time um, before the next data comes in. You want everyone who's capable of looking at it and uh, interpreting it to have a chance, a stab at like finding that new, making that new discovery with the data. So a lot of the first round of data is going to be um, non-proprietary. So, so Dr. Rutkowski, what is your research in? Is there any benefit you see that this may have in things maybe that you're working on? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, we have. Uh, I'm involved with two two programs in the first cycles with JWST. Um, one of them is going to be most likely the largest program that's ever 600 hours about of time will be spent observing objects that we pre-select oh. um, for JWST to observe. Um, and we're gonna under, I, I study Primarily, I work actually not in the infrared. I work in the ultraviolet, the opposite end of what your eyes so, can yeah, see. So, yeah, what are you looking for that would, would layperson would understand? Yeah, we look for uh, 
what makes galaxies to form stars? Oh. Um, how, how do stars come into existence? What impact does stars, star formation in galaxies have on the galaxies themselves? And as well, the what we call the circumgalactic environment, the environment around the, the galaxies, or even the intergalactic environment, the intergalactic medium, the space between galaxies themselves. Why did this hydrogen get reionized? That's a question that we, we look to answer. And why with. is that important? What does that tell us for your average human being? If you were to look at all of the stuff in the universe, uh, 75% of it is high. Or 75% of the stuff that you're familiar with, what we would call normal matter, mm-hmm. it actually constitutes only about 5% of all the stuff in the universe. The other 95% is um, up for debate, what it's comprised oh. of. But of that 5%, the vast majority of that is hydrogen. And hydrogen made this transition at some point in history and it had to be linked to the astrophysics of the environment around it and we are not satisfied with theories we want to be able to find observational proof to validate our our theories and that's what that's what jwst is is going to do for us uh, amongst a myriad of other things i was talking about yesterday with you know discovery of planets of, of new planets or atmospheres of planets to look for life on other in other solar systems so could that help us look close more closely at mars let's say we're trying to you know do research on mars can we look i mean if this is so strong are we going to be able to see something more there that might help us yeah so mars is mars is a mars i think is actually too bright um, oh, to, really? to observe which i don't think that you're allowed to select a select on Mars, but you can select on the outer gas giants. So Jupiter, Saturn, um, we're looking in the infrared, we're looking deeper into the atmosphere, we're looking at different cloud layers, how different chemicals form, what's the chemistry of these upper layers, as well as the two planets that no one likes to talk about, Uranus and, and Neptune, these big blue balls floating out in the outer solar system. We haven't spent much time. We send missions to Mars, we send missions to Saturn. Why don't we want to talk about it? What's the Well, they're just they're just, just so too far, far away, away that we think <laughs> yeah. it's impossible. Oh, yeah, okay. I mean it, it's it's a 20-year it's a 10-year project just to get oh, out there gotcha. and Saturn is a lot more appealing. It's got beautiful rings and lots yeah. of moons. Neptune's this big blue ball that doesn't appear to have much going on. But in fact, it does have a really complex weather system sure. that we don't understand how it came, how, how that, mm-hmm. how that's powered, what, what's energizing that system. And so JWST is going to give us some really crucial insights into the way in which energy moves through the atmosphere of Neptune and help us to better understand how icy planets like these came into existence, which is really important for other solar systems because when we find other planets around other stars, they oftentimes have masses comparable to Uranus and Neptune. It's very hard to detect Earth-like planets, but we found lots of Neptunes. So if we want to understand how planets form, the ones we have to study in other systems are of that sort of the gas giants in the outer solar system. And JWST is going to help to peg down or constrain a bit more how these galaxies evolve and and, uh, release heat, produce heat, so on and so forth. All right, so here's another probably layman's question. So how about Pluto? Will we learn any more about Pluto? And, you know, because it it was planetary status and then it lost it. And I'm just curious if that's going to help us to find out more about it and... Yeah, so I don't know if there's, I'm trying to think of there, I don't think there were any proposals to look explicitly at Pluto, but there are, there were a number of proposals. There's a, um, that were to look at planets or planetary objects like Mm -hmm. Pluto in our solar system. And one of the things I threw out last night when talking to someone is that um, there is right now a, uh, a mathematically based proposal based on statistics or mathematical principles alone that there's a truly is a ninth planet out in the outer solar system really about the mass of neptune okay um it would be a 
a bona fide planet of its own right if we could find it. But it's only been suggested based on the orbits of all the other small uh -huh. bodies we found. And so JWST is, though we may not, we're not going to reconstrain or redefine Pluto as a planet based on what JWST sure. is. We might find another planet really? because we detect these other small icy bodies. We can measure their orbits very precisely. Maybe we'll even find this this object itself. Um, it's going to be ex it's extremely far away. It's extremely cool. It's extremely faint. The only way you really hope to ever detect it is with a giant infrared telescope like JWST. So you're mentioning all these different projects. So, I, I mean, anybody, like you said, can use this data now. Are there constantly being proposals made for new projects so that, that you can get access to this somehow? And how do you get selected as a part of this? I mean, it seems like so vast because there's so many people that probably want to yeah, know this. Yeah, it's, it's extremely competitive. Okay. Um, uh, but, you know, if you're, I mean, if there's a student listening right now or someone who's thinking about entering into the fall, um, we're going to have, we, we often say we're, we're drinking through a fire hose. We're going to have so much data coming in. Anyone who wants to get their hands dirty, there's going to be a project they can work on. Um, so the, the joy of having this first round of data come through, um, the first year of data that will come through, is that all of this data will largely be available to anyone. So anyone who wants to get their hands dirty can, can do it. Mm -hmm. in, and then hopefully we can use that to, to leverage into making a proposal of our own and, and maybe win out. But the, the oversubscript, we call it the oversubscription rate, uh, the, is like a factor of 10 to 1. You oh, know, wow. were, for every hour that they had in the year to make an observation, sure. there were 10, 10 hours requested. So And so does NASA then focus on whatever that somebody gets a proposal that, that is accepted, then they focus on whatever particular issue that they're looking at then? Is that how do you get the time slots? I'm trying to picture how that exactly works. Yeah, it's there. I, I've seen these uh, spreadsheets sometimes where they try to organize the, mm -hmm. the, the proposals. Um, basically, if you get accepted, there's a whole team that then goes into action to try to organize the schedule in such a way so that you can spend one hour looking at this object, but just nearby, there's someone who's looking at, you know, I might be looking at a distant galaxy, but sure. at that same, an hour later, there may be a asteroid that's flying by that someone mm -hmm. wants to study. And th they, they have to take in all this information so that no minute is lost. So and logistically, you've got to really be on the ball. It's a nightmare. Oh it's gosh. a, it's a, it's, and it's, it's a really, they, this is all done in Baltimore at the Space okay. Telescope Science Institute, where there's a whole team of people who are building that schedule so that every minute of every day that can be spent observing some object is is dedicated to doing science or calibrations or, or whatever you need to, to do the best science possible. Was there anything in the pictures of the information that was released that made you go, aha, this will be really good for what we're doing? Yeah, the the images that were released of that that gravi uh, that lensing cluster were were my were my favorite. They they were there were if you take the old HST image that was the Hubble image of mm -hmm. the same object and compare it with the new image um, uh, from JWST, you can if you blink those two back and forth, you start to see galaxies in the background that oh. weren't seen in Hubble, but now okay. they're they pop right out. These little red. M&M looking objects in the background. Those are all galaxies that are emitted light 13 billion years ago. And only, it made its way all the way across the universe and slammed into our telescope's mirror. Um, but, and we get to see this, this, this radiation t today. Those are, those are really stunning to think that we're almost to the, the beginning of the beginning of star formation in general. Like this is, the universe is only 13.8 billion years old and we're seeing 
consistently now and in the future it'll become commonplace to see galaxies all the way back to 13.5 13.6 you know only a few hundred million years after the big bang these galaxies came into existence and that's you know you can and then everything you get for free you get everything along that's closer to you as well in the image so you get to see the whole process of galaxy evolution in one picture um, how galaxies came into existence, how they grow and evolve, and eventually how, when you look around us locally in the Milky Way, how galaxies end up dying, how they run out of gas to make new stars, or how they get destroyed or shredded by their interactions. Dr. Rakowski, will this change or influence maybe how your curriculum is here at Minnesota State and maybe things that you teach or things that you will focus on differently based on past classes and things? Yeah, I, I uh, every year I've taught, I've been talking about in the future, we'll have images from JWST to look at this. And now, like one of the first images that came out, I already put that into my lecture notes for this fall because there, it was the image of the southern, uh, the southern Ring Nebula. I think you're seeing it. It's sort of a potato-shaped object. It's got a, lots of beautiful reds and greens and blues. Um, that object is a planetary nebula. And in one of the images, you see very quick, very easily, you see two bright stars in the center. This is a binary system of stars. They're, they're, they're flying around one another on very short time scales. And that's stirring up all of the gas and dust to produce this nebula. And that's something that I've always, you know, I talked about when we look at planetary nebula in class. I say, look at how, you know, this isn't a nice little bubble of gas. If this star was blowing off its winds, it would make a nice bubble. But there's something else going on to make it look like a, um, you know, a figure eight or a, or we give them all sorts of cute names, the ant nebula, for example. <laughs> okay. It distorts the, the shape of it, and that's it's obvious from these images what's distorting the shape of these nebula. And that so that's already in my lecture notes for, so, for this so semester. So really it is going to advance the study of these oh, yeah. things. The textbooks already need to be rewritten. Uh, is that yeah. in your plans as well, being a faculty? Because I know that, that articles and research is important to get uh, yeah, published. Yeah, well, I... I've never written a textbook. Maybe I will at, at some point, but certainly the the research articles. Um, I mean, in in two weeks, I we we travel for the uh, I'll go to um, the what we call the International Astronomical Union's C Congress. Every three years, they host a big congress of all astronomers all over the world, and I guarantee that on the plane ride back, I'm going to be writing a paper based on some discussion um, that I had at that conference. It's it's. It's going to be so much, so much work to do. <laughs> well, I can tell you're very, yeah. very excited about this, and it seems like a cool thing. We are unfortunately are out of time here sure. on the radio show, but uh, we've been chatting with Dr. Michael Rakowski, who is a professor of astrophysics here at Minnesota State, and obviously this is a big deal, this new telescope, and I assume the public will be seeing more as I, I assume that maybe they'll be sharing with the public and NASA will and others. Every day we'll put a... Um, there's yeah, where a, can we see this? Is there like a site we can all go to to, to check um, it out? You can go to, uh, there's a, I think it's nasa.gov forward slash webs first light or webs first images. Okay. That's where they released all of the new, the stuff from yesterday. But if you go to the, um, if you just Google NASA web, the first, usually You're the first link that comes up and then on the front page of the, the web website, they'll have a um, image of the day or new images. And you can just refresh that every morning and find whatever new data has, has been prettified and, and made um, uh, provided some sort of context yeah. they inform form you of what science was being done or what was 
what was going on here so that you it's not just a pretty picture you can actually right. learn something from it and there yeah. is pretty pictures too so it's, it's they like, are pretty to me pictures. it's like art you know? yeah it's it awesome. is it's it's in I actually, in conversation with someone who is an artist about how do we transform this yeah. and sort of beautify the hallways we've got a lot of old old hallways but we've got some new images that um, we could splash up this beautiful art artwork on the walls yeah. and really capture some of the students attention walking between classes well thanks again for your time I appreciate it yeah. and I hope we can have you back sometime and talk about how how things are developing whether it's in the classroom maybe you've got some students doing interesting topics whatever it is stay in touch for sure all right thank you so much well it was really interesting i hope you guys learned a little bit too it is 11 30 so it's time now for some blues we're going to get some blues from paul thorne here on the maverick